All right, amen. Well, thank you, Mark. Like you said, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. Matthew 6. And uh, we are continuing our Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we're going to dive into our text, picking up right where we left off. Uh, last week. And so last week, Pastor Kendall introduced this text to us, uh, Matthew 6, and we got into the first few verses here. And really, Jesus be, kind of began to give a picture of what it looked like uh, in, in prayer and, and began to introduce this idea that prayer is not to be uh, prayed towards men, for men, for the audience of men and, and their praises. That is the incorrect uh, mindset behind it and the incorrect uh, focus. And, and Jesus very clearly teaches, and we saw this last week, that when we Pray for the praise of man. If that's our, our kind of our chief end, our goal, we would never satisfy that desire. It's kind of like uh, pulling on a thread on a sweater, right? It's just going to continue to unravel. You're never going to truly find what you're looking for if you're trying to pray for the gratification and the praise and attention of man. And I just encourage you, if you missed uh, last week's sermon, to go back and take a look and take a listen to that. Pastor Kendall did a great job uh, really setting this up for us today and talking about praying to the Father in secret and really what does that look like and, and praying for the reward of the Father and, and giving that as a focus. And so today we're picking up, like I said, right where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in verse 7, continuing the Sermon on the Mount, and really specifically, Jesus continues uh, to press on a little bit deeper here. He really begins to take it from not just praying as the hypocrites do uh, for the audience of man and the praise of man, but now let's really press in a little bit deeper here and talk about this approach and this view of prayer and why are we doing this and what is this all about? And so let's just dive in right here. We're going to uh, read the text. Well, Mark just read the text. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so we see, man, prayer is central to the life of the believer. Prayer is a central aspect. It's a very key element. And Jesus gives us this additional warning. And so although we've kind of broken this up in a couple different weeks, Jesus is right in the thick of this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's continuing to press in, continuing to kind of get into the topic and practices of righteousness. And as he was starting to talk about that last week and why we, pre, why we pray this way and what this looks like and really the mindset Behind it. It's interesting as we started this last week in chapter six, and we see it here and throughout the rest of this text. But Jesus kind of uses this pattern of when you do this, don't do it like this, but do it like this instead. You know, when you, uh, when you give last week, don't do it like this, but do it like this. When you pray, don't do it like this, but do it like this. And the thing is really neat that Jesus doesn't just say, don't do it like this, but he gives us more in depth look at what that actually means. Looks like he gives us a better understanding of how it should look and how we should approach it. So this morning, I just want to pull out four truths about prayer that Jesus gives us right here in these few verses this morning. So the first one is found in verse seven. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. 
The first key truth is simply this, that prayer should not be focused on meaningless repetition. Prayers should not be focused on meaningless repetition. This is the particular fault that Jesus is singling out here, these empty phrases or meaningless repetition. And the idea behind meaningless repetition in the Greek would refer to idle or thoughtless chatter or babble, just kind of speaking just to speak, just thoughtlessly speaking things out and, and this idea of prayer is basically that there's a lot of talking happening, but there's not much content. Jesus says, don't just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. It's what the pagans do. And at the heart of pagan prayer was heaping up these empty phrases. Some translations actually say vain repetition, vain repetition. In other words, don't let your prayers just drag on and on and on and on for the sake of talking. Listen, when we have that mindset about prayer, let's just go ahead and spoiler alert, we're not trying to, we're not going to impress God. He's not going, wow, you've really figured this thing out, right? We're not gonna impress God with the length of our prayer. Now, it's also very important to note, Jesus is not saying long prayer is a bad thing. He's not saying don't be, don't pray at length and don't repeat certain things. If that's how it is leading you in the moment, the Spirit's leading you in the moment, that's what you're feeling led to, that's fine. I mean, Jesus actually modeled that himself. As he's in the garden, he's, he's having long prayer, repetitive. He's kind of asking the same thing, Father, if this cup could pass, please take it from me. He's kind of repeating that same thing. We see this in Luke chapter six, that Jesus went away before he chose the 12 and he spent the entire night in prayer. So Jesus prayed long prayers. He prayed some repetitive prayers. But what he's saying here and what he's referring to is this idea of vain repetition. That many words, that the thought was that many words would be the thing that mediates between man and God. That's just the, it's just the simple fact that I'm talking and talking and talking. And these pagan cultures of the time, they thought that these repetitious chants would kind of spur their gods into action. If we call on our gods long enough and hard enough, then, then our God will move on our behalf. It's what these pagan cultures would have believed. And they thought that the gods would have thrived on that type of prayer. We see this in 1 Kings 18, right? Remember the this, this scene there with Elijah and he's, 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 he's challenging the, uh, the prophets of Baal and they're praying, the prophets of Baal are praying hours and hours and hours repeating the same thing. And Elijah steps up and just gives a short little direct prayer and God acts, right? So we know that the mindset here is not just repetitious, meaningless repetition. The general rule for pagan prayer was the more I talk to my God, the more likely he is to listen. I can remember being a kid, I was about seven or eight years old, and uh, my great-grandmother passed away and we went to Ohio to her funeral. Now I'm a seven, eight-year-old kid. I grew up in a church, a Baptist church, much like this, kind of my, my thing, you know, it was kind of seen a lot of uh, prayer in this kind of a context. And I go up to my great-grandma's funeral and, and she was Catholic, and so we go to this little room and we're, we're circled up and, and I'm seven or eight years old, remember this now, okay? So they circle up and they start doing the, the rosary bead prayers. And I'm thinking at seven or eight years old, man, why, why are they just repeating the same thing over and over and over again? We, we still see this today, right? We still see some of this mindset. And before we just quickly point the blame at others, I wanna just ask you this morning, how often do you pray this very way? Vain repetition, empty prayers. Like for me, as I thought about that, 
I can quickly go back to you a lot of times just praying over a meal. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Amen. Right? Okay, we don't have to raise your hand today. But if you, you know, we can track with some of that, right? We pray the very same thing sometimes with very little thought. And I think that falls into this category of just vain repetition, where our lips are moving, but our hearts and our minds are standing still before the Lord. God desires so much more in our prayer life. So look at verse 8. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like the pagans. That's how they pray. For the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now we read verse 8 and we go, okay. So he's telling us the importance of prayer, not to pray these repetitious ways and all these different things. But then he says, your father knows what you need before you ask. So the natural question is, well, if he already knows what I need, then why do I need to ask? Right? If he knows what I need, then why do I have to pray in the first place? Well, it's a relationship. He desires to to commune with us, to have conversation with us. He desires that personal relationship. He wants us to talk to him. He wants to hear from his children. He wants to hear from his children. And the key word in this verse is the word father. That your father knows what you need before you ask. The key word here is father. And I think we have to begin to approach prayer through the lens of seeing God as father. Seeing God as father. So the second key truth is simply this. That's not, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be meaningless repetition, but prayer should be focused on meaningful relationship. Seeing God as father. Now I realize that for some in the room today and you think, okay, I'm seeing God as father. I want to come to him in prayer as God as father. For some in the room, maybe you hear that we should think of God as Father, and it's a sore subject for you. Like, you don't want to think of God that way, maybe necessarily, because when you hear the word Father, you don't think of a good thing at all. Maybe for some in the room, when you hear the word Father, you think angry. You think accuser. You think absent, you think cheater, or you think uh, liar or abusive, because I think a lot of times we tend to see God in the lens of Father through our earthly fathers. Now, some of us in the room might think of Father, earthly Father, and think, man, I got the best dad ever. I got tons of great memories, all these wonderful things. My dad's my hero. But let's just set everybody free this morning. No matter if you see, if you had the, the best earthly dad or the worst earthly dad, all earthly dads are imperfect. And so we don't need to look at God as father through the lens of our earthly fathers. That's what we typically want to do. But we have to understand that every earthly father is a sinner. They're imperfect. But we know that God is the true, good, perfect, loving father. And that he wants us to come before him and share our needs and share our requests and share our burdens and share our desires. To come before me as fathers, we have to think along the lines of a a child talking to a father, of a child talking to a father. Now listen, uh, there's something sweet about a child talking to a father. If you're a parent in the room, you know sometimes they can get on your nerves, right? Sometimes. But for the most part, man, no matter what they're doing, what they're saying, you think it's the best ever because they're your child, I think when we come to God through prayer and we think about talking as a child to a father, it's such a great picture. I think we complicate it as adults. We complicate prayer a lot of times, don't we? 
we, we can overcomplicate it. So we're trying to instill this principle in, in our, the lives of our children and our family and making an importance of prayer and, and modeling prayer for them and just teaching them the value of prayer. And so we do this at dinner where we'll just every once in a while say, okay, Charlie, you're gonna pray tonight. She's like, okay. And so she'll still, she, she usually kind of says the same thing, but, but then we ask our three-year-old to pray. And I just pulled out my phone because you never know what she's gonna say. So I pulled on my phone and I took a little video. So I want you to watch this little video of Gracie praying the other night at dinner. Now, amen, that's right. There's, there's a proud Nana. Now you watch that and you go, like, kind of like me, like, I don't really know what she said. <laughs> Dear God, please help God find you of your blessings. I'm like, honey, he knows his blessings, okay? Like he doesn't need help finding them. But, but I love the heart behind it. It's simple, short, to the point. You know, I don't think God's in heaven going, no, honey, I already know more of my blessings. That's what I'm doing. But she, God's like, man, I love it. Come to me before, before me as a child. So short, so simple, yet so sweet and sincere. So he says, your father, verse eight, your father knows your needs before you even ask. Verse nine, pray then like this, our father. There it is again, our father in heaven. Now we read that today. We're talking a lot about this idea of father. And it might not seem like a big deal to us today because we're reading it in English in our current context right here, right now. But to the disciples and to those in the crowd listening, this was mind-blowing. They're listening and they're hearing Jesus talk to them about praying before God in heaven as father. And the Greek word that's actually used here for father, it means a man who has begotten a child. It's this word pater, and it means a man who's begotten a child or one who imparts life, kind of at its basic, most core level of father, one who imparts life, right? A male parent, an immediate male ancestor. And although this is written in the Greek, it's very likely most scholars would believe that Jesus was actually speaking in Aramaic. This was the most common language of the Palestinian Jews of this time. And so Jesus is most likely speaking in Aramaic. So the word is not pater. The word in Aramaic is actually the word Abba. Abba. And Abba translates deeper down into it, meaning dad or daddy. So you've got father, the one who imparts life, the male ancestor, or you've got daddy in the Greek, I mean in Aramaic, the Abba, the dad, the daddy. It carries a much more intimate and personal connotation to it. And as, we, as they would have heard this in the crowd, they would have, it would have resonated with them on such a deep level to think about praying to God Father as dad, as daddy. Now think about this connection for a second. Why is that important? Because Anybody can father a child, right? Pater, that's that, that's that Greek translation. It doesn't take much to father a child, right? But if you're gonna be Abba, it takes a lot more relational significance. Anybody can bring a child into the world, but to actually be dad, to be daddy, to play that role in that intimate of a relationship way. And when we pray to God as Abba, Father, it gives us this mindset. We can approach him with our guard down. We don't have to have it figured out. We don't have to stand the right way and say the right things. We can just come before him as dad. Dad, I want to talk to you. I'm struggling right now. 
You know my heart. I need to just share some things. And although he is so big and so holy and may feel at times very distant, he's also very close and very personal. And he gives us permission to come to him. So it's not about this repetition, but it must be approached through seeing him as Abba, Father. So he says, verse nine, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Father in heaven. He gives us now this model. The third truth is that Jesus gives us this model to follow basically because of the relationship that here's kind of a shell. Here's an idea. Jesus gives his disciples this model. And many times I think we make the mistake of thinking this is actually the prayer that we need to pray. Our father in heaven, I will be your name. Your kingdom come, right? It's these exact words, but Jesus just gives us this, this idea, these petitions and I remember being in high school playing on the football team and every single day at the end of practice, coach would kind of rally us up, hurl us up and he'd say, all right guys, it was a great practice. We got a lot to work on tomorrow. Keep your head focused, all this stuff, you know, giving us the speech. And then he would say, somebody pray it out. And what would we pray? Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, kingdom come. And, and he was in the midst of that. Coach was in the midst of that leading that prayer. And I'm thinking, coach, 10 minutes ago, you were cussing us out and calling us names and belittling us. Like, seriously, coach, do you actually think about what you're saying here? You know, it was just vain repetition. It was, this is the prayer, right? This is the prayer. Jesus is like, listen, it's not about these exact words. He says, pray then like this or in this way or along these lines. And so the model he gives us, these six petitions in two symmetrical parts in light of the relationship with God as heavenly father. The first one is this. We pray in God's name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Once again, our father, the key relationship, but hallowed be means that, God, your name is holy. Your name is honored above all. Now, there's a lot of different names for God in the Bible. As you read through, there's different, there's different names for, for God. But, and, and a name at this time was not just a label by which somebody was identified with, but it actually carried a representation and a reality in the presence of who that person was. So as they would say, you know, God is our provider. God is our protection. He is our refuge. All these different things, these were, these were, to, be, uh, these were to be kept holy because that's who God was. That's representative of who he is. And so they would, they would sing to, to hold the name of God high above all else, to be honored above all, that God would be honored as the holy one that his name would be approached with the most reverence and would be exalted above all else. Now, I don't know about you, but as we think about this first part, how would be your name, right? The culture today, it really bothers me how culture today tends to view and to use the name of God so lightly. Oftentimes, the culture mocks the name of God and, and, and dishonors the name of God. But what he's saying here is, listen, don't forget about the honor and the name and the presence and the representation of who he is. So Jesus is saying that our prayer should begin with the preservation of the all and the holiness of who God is. Once again, in light of being a father, God, we're acknowledging you as holy above it all, honoring you first. Our prayer has to start in that position. Then he goes into the second thing. This is talking about God's kingdom. For your kingdom come, verse 10a, your kingdom come. And this has to do with God's rule and God's reign. Now for the disciples and for Jesus in this moment, the kingdom was not just a future reality that one day would come you know, to, to an end there, but it was also this idea that it was very much 
present in the here but yet not yet mentality. It was, it was here among us but not yet fully what it needs to be. So we're praying, God, would your kingdom come? Would your kingdom invade, uh, invade earth and come among us and let us be a part of this? This idea of understanding that God's sovereign ordering over all things at all times, but also in another sense of his direction in the lives of these individuals on a daily basis. God, your kingdom, would it come, not just for what it's gonna look like in the future, but now among us, would you come and live among us and let us operate in your kingdom? So we cannot pray this mindset, we can't, we can't go into prayer with this mindset without committing our own will and our own actions to the kingdom of God. God, I'm gonna pray through your kingdom's sake, through your, the lens of your kingdom. Would it be now here among us and in me, present in me, living out in me? God, may you, more, may you rule more and more in the lives, in my life and the lives of those around us and that your messianic kingdom would come to fulfillment here on this earth. The third thing he says is God's will. Would you, your will be done, the rest of verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we're honest, this is probably the hardest part of the prayer. One of the hardest parts, because I think a lot of times it's hard because we don't have the full kingdom implications of it. God, your will, your perfect will, right? We don't see the full kingdom implications. We don't have the final picture of what it looks like. But once again, it's this already yet not yet nature. But I think it's also difficult to understand because so many times we're so concerned with ourselves and our own little kingdom. I'm so concerned with myself and my own little kingdom. I mean, we're selfish people, right? We're selfish people. If you, we realize this at a very young age that we are selfish people by nature. If you have kids, if you've got grandkids, if you've been around kids at any point of your life, you see that it begins at a young age. What's like one of the first words a child learns? Mine. That's my toy. I'm like, actually, I paid for it. <laughs> or no, that's a, your grandparents gave that to you. No, that's my toy, you know? And it's that mindset of it's about me and my kingdom and, and my sake. But furthermore, I think we have the tendency to be more concerned with our own name and our own reputation so many times in the name of God, which is why it begins with God, keep your name holy. We gotta keep your name at the center of it all. It's not about me. Jesus is saying, man, it's not, a, it should not be that way among, among my disciples. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is the very thing that Jesus would pray in Matthew 26 as he's in the garden. Once again, he's praying. Father, not my will, but your will be done. This is about your will. And if I have to go to the cross to, to lead out your will, God, I'll do it. Father, if there's another way that this cup can pass, please bring it. But if not, I'll accept it, right? He's praying the Father's will, embracing the Father's will. And so these first three petitions here give us this focus on God, your name, your kingdom, your will. But now Jesus shifts into these human petitions in light of the first three, we go into the next three. And the fourth one that we see here is this idea of sustenance, that give us today our daily bread. God, give us today our daily bread, verse 11. And this petition is all about meeting the daily needs, God meeting our daily needs. Now, I think that's, this, is, we, this one, we, we, we have a hard time fully grasping that sometimes as well because most of the world 
I mean, most, many times we don't live that way, although most of the world does. Most of the world does not have refrigeration. They don't have a pantry stocked full of food. They don't have a, a fast food restaurant a minute down the road. They don't have a grocery store around the corner. Most of the world, they don't have those luxuries that we do. And so we have to, to take this in and to really begin to, to, to live in this mindset. I saw this firsthand several years ago when we went to Haiti on mission trip with the church. We're there in Haiti. I have to have a picture of it this morning, but we're there in Haiti and we're, we're seeing the people of Haiti truly depend. I remember we're up on this mountain and we're here. We're overlooking this beautiful scenery, but you can see their crops are all over the place. And I remember as we talked to the people in the village, they were saying, we, we depend on the Lord every day. And that was one of the, the things I walked away with from Haiti that year thinking, man, they understand what it means to live and depend on the Lord every single day. Because guess what? With no rain, there's no crops. And with no crops, there's no food. Like I said, they don't just say, okay, guys, well, it didn't rain today, so load up, we're going to McDonald's. No, they don't have that luxury. They say, man, we depend on the Lord. And I remember talking to that family and the dad telling us that, man, we're totally dependent on the Lord. We saw that daily depends. We also see this in scripture. Remember when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, and God would provide manna every single day. Or he'd say, take what you need for today. And guess what? The next day he provided more. He provided more. And so the same is true for us, that if God is faithful to provide today, as a loving father who loves his children, if he's faithful to provide today, he's gonna provide tomorrow. He's gonna provide the next day and the next day. And yeah, we, we do our part. We put some stuff in the pantries and the fridge and all that, but ultimately who's providing it in the first place? It's the Lord. It's all about the Lord and he, his provision in our lives. So Lord, would you give me today what I need so I can live and then I can also live out and be, and be gracious and, and live with a spirit of gratitude towards others. So he says, the fifth petition is this, uh, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This is the petition of sin, talking about the importance of sin here. This is the conditional element that our sin creates an obligation, a debt to God that we in and of ourselves do not have the capacity to pay. That we in and of Matthew 18, Peter comes before Jesus and says, how many times do I need to forgive somebody that offends me? Seven times? Jesus is like, really, Peter? 70 times seven. He's like, okay, 490. What about 491? When do they get there, you know? The point was not that you count. The point was that you continually forgive, but the unforgiving servant, Jesus goes into it, he says there was a servant who had this unsurmountable debt. There was no way he'd ever pay it. He goes before the king, begging bucks. He chokes him out. He says, give me the money. The guy's like, please have mercy on me. He's like, I'm not having mercy on you, buddy. Right? He didn't forgive. Jesus says, it should not be that way among us. We should forgive those because we have been forgiven. I love this quote from Douglas O'Donnell. It's a commentator that I found this week. And it says this, if Jesus paid it all, there would be nothing so profane as to accept forgiveness for our sins, but to leave unpardoned the sins of others. If Jesus paid it all, there would be nothing so profane for us to forgive, to receive that forgiveness, to accept that forgiveness, but leave the sins of others unpardoned. And so we should be so filled with gratitude because of what he did for us on the cross. That's a natural overflow that if God can forgive me, I know how I am. If God can forgive me, surely I can forgive you. And that's the mindset of the prayer here, that God, would you help me to live that way? 
And then he goes into the sixth petition, the spiritual battle. Lead us not into temptation, verse 13, but to deliver us from evil. Now, at first read, once again, this might seem a little bit confusing. God, I thought you couldn't tempt us, right? Like you think about that, James 1, 13, it says that let no one say that when he's being tempted, for I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So if God can't be tempted by evil and he tempts no one with evil, then why is Jesus instructing us here to pray this way? Seems a little bit unnecessary and confusing, right? But here's the key, this is fascinating. The answer is in the translation. The answer is in the translation. The Greek word used here for this idea of temptation, it can either mean temptation or testing. And, and what determines how it's used is the context in which it's written. The context determines the translation. There's two different meanings. Sometimes the word means, with the, has this idea of temptation, which is, brings the goal of causing one to sin. This is what it speaks of in James. And other times, the word is used, it can be uh, translated with this idea of a test or a trial to validate one's faith. And, and really, between the tempter or, or the tester, it, it lies in the motive. What's the motive here, right? What's the motive here? Well, well, certainly God will test our faith. God will test our faith. Think about Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. He says, why don't you go up to the mountain and sacrifice your son that you've so longed for? Abraham's like, seriously, God, this is what you want from me. I'll do it. And remember, in just the last moment, God provided. God provided. And Isaac was spared. So God will test our faith. And why did he test Abraham that way? Why does he test us that way? Well, he tests us not to cause us to sin, but so that we can grow and so that he can kind of refine our faith and prove, we can kind of prove our faith to him and that he can grow us in those moments. And so it's not about avoiding those moments of testing because testing will happen, but it's about asking God not to, help, not to let us succumb to the testing or the trial. Don't, don't, we, we need to be strong in that. We need to stand firm. I read this story this week. It was recorded in the Fox's Book of Martyrs and and spoke of two different men under the rule of Queen Mary in the 16th century who were condemned to be burned at the stake for their faith. And they're thrown in prison together. And, and the first man, and he was so confident, he boasted, there's no way I'll ever deny my faith. I'm so ready to give my life for Jesus. I, I'm almost ready like, like a bride is ready on wedding day. There's no way that even at the sight of the flames, I will never recant my faith. And the other man, the prisoner, his fellow prisoner was just like, I don't wanna deny my faith either. But, but I'm nervous. I've always been afraid of fire. He, he admittedly always was terrified by fire. He was like, I'm just afraid that when the day comes, I will see that fire and I'll give in and I'll, I'll recant my faith. And he said, would you, would you just please pray for me in my weakness that, that you would just, God would just empower me and give me the strength to stand firm. And the other guy's like, how could you be so weak? What's wrong with you? How could you, how could you live this way? Why are, you, why are you being so cowardly? And he rebuked the man. But you know what happened when the day came for them to be executed at the very first sight of the flame, the one who was so proud and so boastful and there's no way I'll ever deny my faith. What did he do at the sight of the first flame? He recanted and they took him down and let him go. But the other guy, the one who was afraid, the one who admittedly was fearful and trembling as that flame grew closer and closer, his prayer was recorded. Lord, would you help me stand firm in the temptation? Help me stand firm, deliver me, lead me not into the temptation in this moment. 
And he stood firm like a rock, praising and magnifying God through his death, his glorious death. And so all of us, we will all go through various trials and testings and these type of things in order that God might test the authenticity of our faith. And our prayer should not be, God, help me not to be tested, but help me not to be consumed. Help me stand strong. So let me ask you, in this, in this way in your life, as the tests of life come your way, what will be brought out of you in that moment? Will you stand firm as the test comes, as the pressure comes? What character traits have you been letting God work with you and building in you so that will, that will be on display in those moments of testing? And then Jesus concludes, deliver us not from evil. The translation can also read, deliver us not from the evil one. And that word deliver means to snatch or to rescue from danger. So basically, we're just kind of at the state of understanding that God, by his divine hand, can snatch us away from, can rescue us from the grips of Satan, from the, the enemies, the scheme of the enemies and his evil ways. And, and a loving father will do that, right? As the child's about to run out into the road, the loving father will snatch that child and bring them back. And this mindset, we have to keep this mindset though, because we, we recognize that on our own, we're prone to run into the road. On our own, our hearts are prone to drift and prone to wonder. I love that we just sang that a minute ago, right? We sang that we're prone to wonder, we're prone to leave the God we love. We're bent that way. We're, we're prone to wonder because we're, we're constantly surrounded by all this evil in this world. We're constantly seeing and hearing and, and feeling the presence of evil, which is why we've got to stay grounded in our faith and stay grounded with seeing God as Father and rely on him and him alone. So we're continually saying, God, would you, would you fill me with strength today? I'm going to be tested. Would you fill me with strength? Would you deliver me? And then Jesus closes out these next two verses. It's kind of interesting. So he kind of finishes out the model prayer. Then he goes into 14 and 15. For if you, if you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you of your trespasses. This is the fourth truth this morning, that Jesus reemphasizes the importance of forgiveness in prayer. He re-emphasizes the, the importance of forgiveness in prayer. He talked about this. This was his fifth petition, remember? Help me forgive those who have trespassed against me and, and that have debt against me because I know you've forgiven me. And I have to understand the insight here that forgiveness is a major factor of prayer, that I must be willing to forgive those who hurt me. I must be willing to forgive them of their faults and their failures. And unless I forgive them of their faults and their failures and their, their sins and their trespasses against me, if I don't release them the, from those things in my life, then I cannot walk in freedom with my Father. I cannot walk in the, the truest form of forgiveness. Now, it's, we have to understand, he's not saying that, okay, well, if you don't forgive someone, then you're no longer a son or a daughter. The relationship, the sonship, or the daughtership is still there. But what happens is we can't truly walk in the freedom that God desires. The relationship never ceases if we're harboring unforgiveness. But there's definitely a hindrance. There's a hindrance. I, I just had to picture it kind of like, like if you think of a prisoner with, with ankle shackles on. They can still move, right? They're still walking. I'm still, I'm still walking. I'm not free, though, am I? 
I'm bound. I'm not able to take my full freedom and to walk in this moment. I think there's so many people who walk around in these invisible chains and there's this relational hindrance between us and the Father because we're harboring bitterness or unforgiveness in our hearts towards others. And maybe we don't even know it's there. Like, you know, and I'll just say just very candidly this morning, this was, this was my story. You know, the last time I preached, right before I went on sabbatical, and I, as I went into a time of sabbatical, God began to reveal some things that were in my heart from 10 years past. And I realized, man, I was harboring some unforgiveness from a situation that happened where I was accused of false things I didn't do. I was, I was given these, I was spoken, these, these terrible things were spoken over me, put a lot of fear in me and a lot of, a lot of just uh, uh, you know, trepidation and some different things. And, and, and it was like, this man spoke these things over me and accused me of these horrible things. And I was like, this is, you're crazy. And you know what I did? I put that away and I tucked it away deep in my heart. Thinking, I'm, uh, it's okay, I, I've dealt with it. But through that process of sabbatical, I was sitting alone on a beach in Port Lavaca, Texas, by myself in a time of solitude. And God said, you need to, you need to release that. You got to get rid of that. You're still a son here, but you're not walking in true freedom with me. You need to release that to me. So you know what I did? I actually, that time, I journaled some of that stuff. I journaled those hurtful things. And I kept them in a journal for 10 years right beside me in my office. And I knew it was there. I always knew it was there. It was one of those things where I could go back and periodically I'd flip through and I'd see it and it would bring up everything again. All the hurt, all the pain, all the things that were spoken over me. And it was like just that crutch that just kept me there. And God said, you need to take that out of that journal and you need to burn it and throw it into the ocean. And that's exactly what I did. And I let go of that stuff. And I'll tell you what, I felt the love of God and the freedom of God, man, wash over me. And in that moment, I felt the Lord say, it's not about what that man said to you. It's about who I say you are and how I've called you and how I've gifted you, how I've wired you. And it's the relationship that I long for you. You need to let that go. And I'll tell you what, since then, it's been a sense of of true, complete freedom. So I'm not speaking to you this morning from just some, you know, theoretical thing. I'm speaking to you from a situation in a period where this is what I walked through. And as soon as we forgive, God says, man, walk with me. Let's go. I want to go back to the quote a minute ago, Douglas O'Donnell. If Jesus paid it all, if Jesus paid it all, there would be nothing so profane as to accept forgiveness for our sins and leave unpardoned the sins of others. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you this. How do you view and approach prayer? Do you see it through the lens of religion? It's all about repetition and vain words and just empty phrases and it's just something I do. Or do you see it through the context of relationship? Where it's an honest conversation with the loving father who cares for you at your deepest point. A father who would willingly give up his one and only son, as it says in John 3, 16, so that we could know him and have relationship with him. Which way do you view and approach prayer today? See, there's really two goals here, is that our goal through prayer is that we would have right relationship with not just God, 
but right relationship with others as well. And today, I want you to know today can be the day where you experience both. As we enter a time of invitation, maybe today, you know, you, you realize just through this, this word this morning and the Lord's maybe been prompting your heart that maybe you need to forgive a brother or a sister today. Maybe you need to just lay that down. You realize, man, I, okay, I've got some unforgiveness on this thing in my life. And like I said, maybe it's so, it feels so small or it's, it's, so, it's tucked so far away. My prayer is that God would uproot that thing in your life that you would begin to walk in true freedom. And maybe, you know, if that's you and you want to come forward and you just want to lay your face at the altar, I, I encourage you to do so today. If you want to stay where you are and just, just have a moment with the Lord, do that. If you want to come outside and meet a prayer partner and just talk with somebody and walk, through, walk this through, man, we'd love to do that with you. If you need to release somebody else today through forgiveness, I encourage you to do that. Because once again, it's a hindrance with you and God. It's a hindrance. It's holding you back. For others, maybe today needs to be the day that you, you just realize, man, I don't just have a hindrance with the Lord. I don't even know the Lord. I don't have a relationship with the Lord. Let me tell you, today can be the best day of your life because you can surrender your life to him today. You can surrender your will and your desires and all the things of your life and say, Jesus, I wanna live for you. I wanna know you and live for you. And you can accept complete forgiveness for the first time and truly walk in freedom. You can move today from death to life. And so we've got prayer partners outside these double doors. If you wanna to respond today, if you wanna go pray about just a situation of unforgiveness, or if you wanna go pray with a prayer partner and say, hey, I need to know Jesus today. We would love to walk you through what it looks like to have a relationship with Christ. However the spirit of God is prompting you in this moment, I encourage that you would respond and that you would move as we pray. So Father God, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your truth, Lord, I just thank you for your son, that you sent your son into this world to walk this place, to, to have a, a purpose and a, and, a, and a path to lead us to relationship with you. I thank you that you even empowered Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, just to communicate power and truth. And I pray today as we approach this aspect of prayer, God, that we would truly walk in freedom with you, that we would know how to come before you as a loving father who wants the best for his children. And so whatever we are today, however we need to respond today, if we need to get right with somebody, call somebody, text somebody, have a conversation, or if we need to get right with you, God, will we learn how today, will we come and surrender our lives to you? And it's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand?